0: Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to Elders and Custodians past, present and emerging, and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest, continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet.
1: I have a huge curiosity, Mm. which is really, really, yeah, (laughs) a really profound curiosity. And, you know, if I could be in 20 different places tomorrow, I would be. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, I think I'm very, very attuned to being instinctive with my work. Yeah. And also very generous with myself to not really have the answers and not going to somewhere. I kind of have a phrase that's like eyes open, mouth shut, Mm -hmm. you know, and I never know how many trips it might take me somewhere somewhere to kind of figure out what I want to make.
0: Hi, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations, we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non-visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, I'm speaking with Stanislava Pinchuk, a prolific young visual artist working in what seems like a million places at once, all over the world. She's not only super successful in her art career, but also a kind of iconic millennial it girl. This year, she was even listed in the Forbes 30 Under 30. With a practice that started on the street, Stan now puts herself well and truly on the ground in sites like nuclear exclusion zones and former conflict zones. These are all places that have a deep meaning to her with her oblique aim to map their data. She combines high and low tech to create a kind of political visual poetry that's hard to put into words. In this chat, we unpack how Stan's work acts as a kind of emotional Geiger meter to the places around the world that pique her pathos and feed her profound curiosity. Welcome, Stan. Hey. Is it okay if I call you Stan? Yeah, I love it. It's good. So how do what do you call yourself? Um,
1: I guess an artist covers it for me, pretty, you know, because I think that's such a generous term. Even though what I do now is so much about data and science and surveying and technology, I guess as well.
0: So you could be like an artist slash analyst.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I think art, you know, artist is yeah. so
0: generous in what it covers. Yeah. So the data thing has sort of come in in the last um, year or so. Is that right? And say no, more than that, a few years. Um, four. Four years, wow, time goes quickly. So maybe for people listening that don't know your practice, just that aspect of it, people might know you online or your past work, or, but the new work is really quite interesting and different in mm-hmm. terms of data. So do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, I guess um, I was always sort of mapping myself and like being in Tokyo and um, kind of Mapping myself, going out and having a really good time and drinking and going to my friends' houses. And um, when Ukraine was invaded, I guess it was a really big reorienteering
0: for me. Because you're from Ukraine, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I started data mapping uh, war and conflict zones about four years ago. And I guess what I'm really interested in now is how ground and landscape and topography is changed by war and conflict zones or by political events. And I guess before I was just mapping myself being in Tokyo and drinking and dancing, going out
0: and... Um, where your friends were living and where you were in, in relativeness to yeah. them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just mean kind of in this really amazing city. And then when Ukraine was invaded, I guess it was a pretty big shock mm-hmm. to my system and a really big rupture in the way that I thought about my place in the world, you know, and it's not something I ever expected to see Um so I guess it kind of reoriented this research question in my practice. I don't know, it's kind of chosen me in a weird way in it's become, few it's, years. it's
0: become about conflict zones, specifically conflict. Mm. But also that Sh- Fukushima, sort of not really conflict.
1: Yeah, I guess a nuclear disaster or, and a nuclear exclusion zone is a very different mm. kind of idea of violence.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess it's almost like accidental violence, isn't it? Or it's... You know. Negligence. Negligence, that's the right word. Yeah, Purposeful exactly. violence. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 by by default, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for people that don't know, that mapping began as a series of drawings with holes is when it first started, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about the process because I know it quite well but it would it, be good for people that don't know it to hear it.
1: Yeah, so I guess where it starts is that I kind of work on the ground mapping a piece of land or, you know, a particular situation and I might do that once or I might do that over a period of time and keep coming back to it.
0: With photography?
1: Um, No, I work in a lot of really different ways. I guess the nature of mapping in difficult places is that you don't always get to choose how you prefer to work Mm -hmm. Uh, and because I come from art and I don't come from science and I don't come from data, it's every project for me is this huge kind of set, of new skills mm. and I have to be really reactive and really nimble and adaptive to where I'm working. And that's partly sometimes, you know, airspace restrictions, time restrictions, security restrictions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, every project I've done has been completely different to the last project. Mm. Uh, and I really like that. I really like um as a really intensive crash course mm. and that also each project is done the way it needs to be and is reactive to the place than me having like a filter or just something that I bring on and um, look at a place through a certain, like, methodology.
0: Mm. And so then you take that data that you collect in whatever way, it might mm-hmm. be visual, it might be actual objects, mm-hmm. um, you take them back to the studio and then you make a series of works based around those artefacts or or collections?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the data always ends up as, like, a 3D mesh, mm-hmm. uh, like in AutoCAD or Rhino or whatever program. Mm-hmm which is then adapted into a drawing and so it's kind of done with millions of pinholes Mm. into a white sheet of paper. So, yeah, it's kind of a very high-tech way of working and then a really lo-fi way of working Hammering
0: in holes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then I guess it also extends to things like sculpture and, you know, preserving conflict zones in terrazzo.
0: Yeah, so um, the newest ones are in terrazzo and they're actually actual objects you collected set into the terrazzo. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so I've been working in Calais uh, since the evacuation of the uh, jungle migrant camp. Mm -hmm. And Calais, I've been working over six months collecting data, so there's quite a lot of change in the land as well. And on my first trip, I was really struck by how much information there was in the land. Mm -hmm. So normally in places where I work, you have to be a bit more attuned to what you're looking for or what the ground's kind of saying. Mm. Uh, especially in the case of like Fukushima and Chernobyl reactor four is um, the data is quite invisible, you mm-hmm. know? so you're working with gigometers and yeah and the air. totally yeah, 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 totally different plot points, and mm-hmm. you know no height fields or, you
0: know yeah,
1: and then Calais is like the ground is like an archaeological dig, mm. or you know, um it really looked like Terrazzo, and I was mm. really struck by how much information. There was yeah. in the ground. Mm. Yeah.
0: From the people the traces of the people that had been in the camp, yeah, basically.
1: Yeah. 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 And just things that were abandoned and trampled into the ground and mm. also in the fires in the evacuation that were set. Mm. So yeah, I kind of kept thinking a lot about these objects and I made a big survey when I was first there and um as I kind of kept going back I really thought about them a lot and then seeing them less and less and less. Mm. And I guess I wanted to preserve the nature of that ground. Mm. So, yeah, on my last trip to Calais, I excavated the last of the ground myself and took the last 20 kilos of all that was left of the camp. And, Mm. um, yeah, basically pulverised it into sort of terrazzo blocks.
0: Mm. So this process, I mean, eventually ends up as an art object that someone buys and takes home Mm. to their home. But the meaning for you... You know, like, or the process—is that a way of you understanding a site or understanding the activity from that site, or is it purely a process of making an end result?
1: No, I mean, I feel like it's such a deep research practice Mm. for me. You know, there's such an intense amount of research. Mm. Uh, You know, every place that I've worked with so far has been somewhere I've lived, uh, or you know,
0: Mm -hmm. spoken the language has been a huge part of my life.
1: Yeah, so So it's really quite
0: personal form of understanding something horrible that's happened Mm. essentially isn't it
1: yeah yeah so I think everywhere I've worked with has been really close to my heart Mm. and autobiographical for one reason or another Mm. so yeah and it's a huge huge research practice for me
0: and do you think I mean because lots of people have a research element but yours is quite emotional like it's quite it's quite an emotional and emotive but also what strikes me is it's not because it changes each time, it's quite unconscious or instinctive kind of process. Mm-hmm. And is that is that something that, you know, is that the, the most comfortable way of you to work, just completely instinctively?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of,
0: coming to the realisation recently that I
1: think the way I see the world is half visceral and half cerebral, mm. you know, so it's kind of not just data or not just mathematics but also the emotion to that data yeah. or trying to explain... I guess, the poetry or sentiment yeah. through, um, I guess, kind of objective
0: means. Through fact, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. And
1: I think that's so fundamentally how I understand the world.
0: So it's interesting because I guess I've never really thought of how, I mean, your early work and what I guess brought us together is quite mm. illustrative in a way, but this is still illustrative in a different way, mm. in, a, in a much more, yeah, poetic way. But it is still illustrating something that's happened, like a, an mm-hmm. event that's happened, which is yeah really yeah. interesting, but something that you can't really know what's gonna come next, do you i mean do you or do you have a list?
1: No, I mean, I have a huge curiosity, mm, which is really essential. yeah, yeah. <laughs> a really profound curiosity, and you know if I could be in twenty different places tomorrow, I would be yeah, uh but yeah, I think I'm very very attuned to being instinctive with my work, yeah and also very generous with myself to not really have the answers and not go into yeah. somewhere. I kind of have a phrase that's like eyes open, mouth shut, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I never know how many trips it might take me somewhere to kind of figure out what I want to make.
0: To learn it, yeah.
1: Yeah, or how much research I have to do after before I go back again. Um, yeah. And I never know what that body of work's going to turn into, you know, so I don't book shows. I don't, no. you know, I'm really generous with Myself to give myself the time to do, it properly. which is an
0: amazing way to to be, and I think a lot of us would love to live like that. Mm. But I guess what everyone wonders is how you make that work, mm. like how you can you know live and travel and mm-hmm. have an apartment and buy food and mm. how do you have a way that does it just work serendipitously or do you you know how do you make it work?
1: Mm. Yeah, yes, that's the really hard question for everyone, right? I mm. mean, I think I'm very lucky in that I'm very very dedicated to my work mm. and I work incredibly hard mm. you know and that, that's kind of all there is and I'm also someone who doesn't really have any responsibilities. And Do you think that me, makes it easier? Yeah I'm not a domestic person I've yeah. never been good at being in one place you know I am um, so I, and I think I've also been very very lucky to have people who understand the practice and support it from you know institutions to collectors to press to, yeah you know um, that just kind of yeah it gives me just enough freedom to kind of be able to do it on my own terms and i structured it also that way for a reason you know because that's yeah. those are truly the conditions that need to be there to, for the work to exist
0: yeah but i guess there is always for everyone a restriction at some point like yeah. there's a there's only so much you can do with mm-hmm. the money that you have from the last show or from yeah. whatever else work so i guess each time do you just work out that do you scale it for each purpose for each mm. sort of body of work and then you might be in a better time make a bigger body of work or does it sort of work like that
1: yeah yeah or well, basically every every project kind of just runs the next one in a chain and yeah I don't do much else that's not work yeah you know? and travel is
0: part of that now yeah. for you so that's kind Massively. of yeah. so you've you've effectively tied it all into the same thing haven't yeah. you you're living it yeah. you're living it which is really amazing and I think yeah. it's something that all my favourite artists seem to be, don't really divide their mm. life and their work, which yeah. often is advice given to me. It's like, oh, it's not you, that's your work. But actually mm. the best people, I think, it's the same thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I think I would go really mad if I didn't do it or if I didn't work. You know, I am a workhorse and, yeah. um, you know, realistically other things do suffer yeah. from that. Relationships.
0: You know. um, yeah, I guess so. Which is, I mean, fine and common, but it's just your biggest love is your work, Mm. which is what makes it so beautiful, I think. Um, But the other thing that I know about you that I think it's worth talking about is that you have a curiosity is one thing but then uh, quite an interesting way with people, you know, so like a type of quietness to you that actually in reality is not that quiet underneath, (laughs) you know. But there's... Is that something that you find, I mean, I've also seen you change over time, but, Mm. you know, maybe talk about meeting people and how important that is to your practice and and to make those avenues because maybe people listening might be interested in how you do that.
1: Mm. Yeah, I guess more and more I realise that, yeah, people are everything, Mm. you know, and as an artist we all kind of live basically on generosity.
0: Mm. From each other, yeah.
1: Yeah, we don't live on a salary. We live on the generosity of other people Mm. always. And um, it's beautiful and it's really exhausting. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I think for me since the start, like, community's been everything, Mm. you know, and you're just absolutely nothing without other people. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's something that I'm very grateful for and very conscious for. And um, I think also so lucky to have a few people who are older and more established and so generous with their belief in what I do and also yeah I think very much makes me pass it down and be really conscious of giving it to other people who I really believe in
0: yeah younger than you or yeah yeah,
1: yeah I think that's so important cuz yeah I'd be nothing without the people that you know like yourself that did it you know
0: but but it do you do you think there was a point where you realized that there are people younger than you that are looking to you do do you remember that point when you weren't the younger person. Do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of hard to tell when that point is. Like at mid, because all the artists I'm speaking to in mm. this podcast are now mid-career artists, so somewhere in this weird hole of mid-career, which doesn't make much sense really. But, you know, when, when is that point? Because I find it hard to try and remember. I f- still sometimes feel like the younger person looking up to older people, but then you realise there are people looking up to you. Yeah, it's really bizarre, and right? mm. and it's it's I think we're in such
1: amorphous territory and mm. I think those labels are so confusing as mm. well, you know. You um I don't know how you rule how established or emerging somebody is. You I know? don't know.
0: I, aren't you just emerging until you die <laughs> and then <laughs> you're not you've emerged and gone. Yeah. I think that's yeah. such a bizarre term that doesn't really and and now they're very careful to say, oh, it's not about age, okay? So you can be emerging at fifty. Absolutely. How long does a butterfly emerge for? Some mm. for two seconds, some for fifty years. Mm-hmm. So it's really just up to you whether you're emerging or emerged. Do you remember the point where you sort of thought, okay, well now I can, I've got something to share with other people? No, I I actually
1: can't think of like mm. any point, and I guess maybe the first studios I got, I was seventeen. Yeah, you were young. 18, yeah, like really mm. small, mm. you know? And, um, but they were kind of big studios and mm. roomy studios. And um, even then, I remember having a really clear idea that I had corners in my studio that weren't used, you mm. know? And so I'd give it to my best friend, and, you know, he was learning how to tattoo. And, yeah. you know, as a result, I learned how to tattoo because he was in the corner, you yeah. know, doing all our punk mates and stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah. And this, I mean, I guess that's when I, I met you, but it that, Trading of you know, tattoos obviously something that a lot of people would know you for mm. or know that you do. But that idea of trading skills is something I love about your practice and I try to do as much as I can mm. as well. But um, you know, maybe could you talk about that and where that came from? Was it from those early days where, you know, you just traded tattoos for well, you still do, but mm-hmm. but how did that evolve?
1: Yeah, um, I guess to kind of put it into a context of me now, my work is uh, very difficult, you know, um, mm. not just laborious but emotionally difficult and demanding and, you know, takes over your life and mm. um, it does cost a certain amount to make, mm-hmm. you know. So I'm pretty clear with that and I think I do work so hard that I don't really have a conflict with money in that.
0: Selling those works. Regard,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up in the best... Circumstances. Or yeah, the you don't have to justify and, selling. Your work, you know, okay. I've, I've um, I've done my stretch not yeah, having hot water, and yeah. you know, um, yeah. So I think, I think the work to me is um, such a big thing that it it deserves everything that I can give it to. Mm. You know, nourish it and to do it properly. On the flip side of that, it means the work. Is relatively unaffordable, you know as as a rule of thumb, I can't really afford my own work, and mm. most artists can't, can't, yeah, and most of my friends can't mm. you know and i've yeah. been really, really conscious of that, and accessibility comes in a lot of ways, you know accessibility might not be owning your work, but mm. accessibility might be in um. Like buying a book of it or, you know, listening yeah. to an hour-long podcast of it or yeah. coming to a free lecture. And, or seeing um, a picture of it, yeah. Yeah, or reading mm. an article about it mm. where, you know, you've been really generous with mm. explaining it. So I think accessibility is kind of a multi-tiered mm. thing, you know, and the original is a really small part of that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you come from a generation, possibly the first generation, that properly understood that. but. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess I do too, in a way, in that like that early culture, like zine culture mm-hmm. or tattoo culture or street art or whatever, where things weren't necessarily made for a monetary value. It was actually mm-hmm. about disseminating ideas and on a really basic, accessible level, mm-hmm. which I'm still very passionate about as well. Totally. Hence, radio and podcasts and something that I find the exclusivity of high art really quite gross sometimes. Yeah. Um and I know often collectors share it, but for mm-hmm. you it's it's a, it is that is quite a political driver in a, in the other part of your practice which isn't mm-hmm. about making art objects. And so do you have a structure around that, you know, the tattoo aspect of your process? Is there?
1: Yeah, so I guess what I was going to say is mm. from the second I started tattooing, which is, you know, 8 years ago now. It always felt really intimate, you Mm. know, and it was something obviously I was practicing on my friends Mm. and there's so much trust, you know, and you're taking someone through so much pain.
0: and permanent.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah. And it's such an intense thing. Yeah. And from the start, it never felt right to take money for it. No. You know, and what what amount of money do you put on that?
0: Well, lots of people do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it didn't feel right to you.
1: Just for me, yeah. yeah. And the more that I did it and even the more technically proficient and confident that I got with it, mm. it still never felt quite right, you know. And people really come and pour their hearts out about why they're getting something and mm. – with friends, sometimes they don't even know why they're getting something, but I do, you know, because yeah. I see their life more objectively. Yeah. Um, and I know how they move and how they'll wear it and, mm. um, you know, how their hands fold when they, you know, mm. have wine or smoke a cigarette or yeah. just the way they wear clothes or, yeah, um, you know, that's not something I can give to strangers. Yeah. You know.
0: So um, it is it is a very, very personal project.
1: Yeah, and it's it takes so much emotional energy. Yeah. Out of you, you know, it's it's such a giving, intimate practice that there is still just no way for me that I can put a financial amount on that. Yeah, and it, it just in, it's talking about instincts, you know, it just yeah. doesn't feel right
0: because the parallel between you know uh, what do you call it, stick and poke tattoo, mm. and putting holes in paper is pretty obvious there. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, right, but without the ink. Absolutely. So was that something that you, you know, when was the moment that came where you thought, oh, actually I could be doing this in paper or did that just, how did that evolve?
1: Mm. Um, I mean, I guess in the bigger picture, um, and you know me well Mm. enough, but, you know, anything decorative, anything women's work, Mm. anything textile-based, I'm kind of there in a heartbeat, you know, in anything technical and laborious. It's like an act of penance. Mm. I'm also there. Mm. You know, I don't know why I can't do creative activity that's not like something that you can't take back and is super permanent and unforgiving and mm. like time-consuming and painful. Yeah, you just um, love it. Yeah, it's just that's what draws me. It's, mm. uh, but, yeah, I love the tension in those mediums. And, yeah, so I guess... Both techniques are so much drawn in the history of what we call women's work for mm. me. So, mm. so many cultures that tattoo, you know, ritually, it is women tattooing other women in the community. Mm. And um, as far as the holes in paper, it's from um, lace making. So mm. all my family are lace makers. Are they? Yeah, I and know beekeepers. Oh. Yeah,
0: yeah. oh, yeah, I knew the beekeeper. Mm, yeah. You're yeah. passionate about bees too, right? Yeah, I'm a beekeeper. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, But the lace thing, I guess it is, it is a bit like lace or stitching as well as yeah, tattooing.
1: Yeah, and I guess what women have historically tattooed on each other are jewellery motifs and textile mm. motifs and decorative motifs that are mm. worn on the body. mm you know, and that's just one other extension of it. Mm. So I've always found it really, really powerful. And I guess they're both mediums where, um, like a lot of women's work, they're really painful, mm. you know, and they you go through a tremendous amount of suffering to do them for a really beautiful result mm. that is almost dismissed sometimes as vain or decorative or, yeah. you know, secondary. Um, and they carry this incredible tension that mm. I think is really important to... Um, kind of carry a beacon for that visual language, you
0: know. Um, I mean the other thing I guess that your work and you play into is sort of the world of fashion or mm. where those decorative motifs end up, which in terms of taste or style, inevitably if you're at the top of that triangle, mm. you know, end up in the world of fashion, which you sort of have found yourself also ending up there. Can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, how that how you relate to the world of fashion or, mm. you know? sit in that
1: yeah I mean to begin with it's always the industry I thought I'd work in Mm. you know yeah right from the start yeah well being a kid in Ukraine you know I always thought I'd do something creative but I didn't know an artist was a job (laughs) yeah right you know I didn't know paintings happened after the 19th century you know it wasn't around it wasn't in my town Mm, it wasn't mm. in the museum Hmm. um so I'd always loved drawing I'd always loved yeah um but yeah we didn't have any art books you know we didn't know any artists um so I always thought I'd be yeah doing something kind of creative but practical and yeah yeah, I always thought it would be fashion growing up and Mm. um it's such a huge source of inspiration and ways way of thinking for me and all my work is textiles you Mm. know yeah I guess inspiration for me is really diverse and you know partly from politics and international relations Mm. Um, a lot from architecture and obviously working in space and ideas of empty space and nothingness yeah, and a lot from fashion and mm. drape and memory and technique and traditions
0: yeah. mm, passed yeah. on. Mm. So, do you see? I mean, I know recently you. Um, I saw some photos of you looking at lace in a collection of. Was it Dior or an old collection? What was that lace that you were... Yeah, I was
1: really lucky to get the archives of uh, the Victorian Albert Museum. All right. Oh,
0: yeah, the v yeah. Yeah,
1: and also the Musée des Arts Décoratifs mm-hmm. in Paris, which is like the wing of the Louvre. Um, Beautiful. Uh, and that was researching the Calais lace, which kind of oh, ended okay. up being the Calais work. and right. It was also a bit of research uh, for the next project that I'm doing as well, so... Mm.
0: So, so I mean, in terms of the Calais work, it's mm-hmm. quite interesting because you have almost consciously spanned like high and low as well. So mm-hmm. you've got, I mean, lace isn't really, you know, traditionally owned by the lower class of people and mm-hmm. then you know refugee camp is kind of the other end so mm-hmm. maybe I mean is there some way do you consciously think about class in your work at all apart from the sharing aspect mm-hmm. which I think does address mm-hmm. class but in terms of your collectible work is there you know how do you see that going in the future trying to do you try to keep a, fo- a foot in both camps is I guess what mm. I'm trying to say. I guess the uh, Calais work
1: was less about class um and more about these two histories of france mm-hmm. so um calais was the famous lace making mm. center of france and they would make lace borders you know that would kind of go all around the world, the world yeah. um and then i guess now it's a place with a dwindling industry um
0: because of industrialization and yeah,
1: Tyler. yeah, but also kind of now known for these political borders. Yeah. And I guess yeah, that was kind of the parallel for me more than anything. Uh, but I guess, uh, yeah, they're very much ideas of desire, mm. you know. It's a fabric of desire and longing, and mm. um, which is so much the story of, you know, any migration or uh, I guess kind of desire for social mobility, mm. you know. Yeah, obviously being a Ukrainian from the border
0: is Yeah, you know, that's influenced you always. Yeah,
1: yeah, and about migrant myself is yeah. Mm. Um yeah, I guess yeah, and let alone a history of, you know, lace making, but
0: um Yeah. And how do you feel about, you know, being an Australian and the sort of what's what's happened here in terms of as a nation and what we stand for in terms of migration? Like, I mean, do you feel like you could have any impact I find it quite, I feel quite helpless in terms of that plight of people trying to immigrate to this country for obvious reasons, but, yeah. you know, do you do you ever think that you'll get to a point where you can have any impact on that situation? Yeah,
1: it's really hard. I guess the situation with Manus and Nauru has been so outside of people's control mm. in this country and feedback and... Um, action you know and um even in the support of legal cases and yeah something i've been involved with Mm. um with fundraising for um for a place that's i think so special in the world for its social mobility in so many ways and progressive in
0: so many ways yeah
1: yeah and it's wealth and it's yeah capacity to be progressive in so many ways Mm. um, and creative and yeah yeah it's um it's a complete and utter shock. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's something that feels so suddenly helpless.
0: Mm. Um, I mean, recently we've seen, you know, obviously the big impact that the artists, that collective had on the mm-hmm. NGV, um, where they cloaked the Picasso. And I thought that was yeah. a really creative sort of way of bringing it to public eye. Yeah. You know, and that involves security, yeah, yeah, protest. That, is really a, phenomenal. Exactly. Yeah. That, that involvement that the NGV implicitly was part mm-hmm. of and and then they did make enough of a point for, for the NGV to retract mm. that contract and change it. But do you think, I mean, what? How, how can artists like ourselves? What else, you know, I know it's a pretty boring question but it's also one that I think about all the time. Mm-hmm. Like is there a point you get to where you have enough power or influence to sort of change any of that or,
1: mm-hmm. you know... It's such an interesting question mm. for me and I've been thinking about it a lot and the more that I do work in difficult places, I really think about the role that artists can have mm. that can't be done by journalists or NGO workers or activists or yeah. photojournalists. Um, and I guess for me the biggest distinction and it's so important for artists is that we don't operate on the pressure of time mm. Um Whereas, you know, a lot of workers or journalists or, you know, something needs to be on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow yeah. and, you know, an NGO needs to get a certain amount of resources to a certain yeah. location within, you know, a certain time or um, people will perish. Whereas artists, I think, have the luxury of not having answers if they don't want to have answers mm. straight away. Mm. And I think that's the biggest um, thing that separates us and... um I think we're so lucky that we are in a position to maybe more eloquently ask the question mm. rather than give the answer.
0: That's right, and open it up, I guess. But, but yeah. also, I, I always think it's good to remind ourselves that we don't, you know, essentially we're independent if we choose to be. Not everyone
1: yeah. is, but and that's really,
0: really important. Yeah, well, politically, it is.
1: Yeah, for me, what's really important about my work and kind of stemming from all these observations is a denial of the photojournalistic image is yeah, such right. a huge part of my work. Mm. And, yeah, the more that I work in difficult places, the more you kind of notice an attitude of like, okay, well, we're coming in and we want photographs of like women and children and bombs yeah, dropping yeah, and then yeah. we're going to go. And that's fine. That has a place and that's fine. Um, but I think at a certain point we're also very de- um, desensitised. Desensitised, yeah uh desensitized to the journalistic image, mm. um, and war is such a horrible repetition that I feel that an image from Vietnam to an image to Ukraine to mm. Syria is has very little difference in know mm. outside of maybe a few cues of what a person is wearing mm. or a piece of technology mm. that they're carrying with them or what may be in the background. Mm. I think, in a certain way, yeah, these images have um, actually they only go so far Mm. sometimes. So for artists I think it's really important to um, Mm. think about talking in other ways and communicating in other ways and what can you say if you deny completely any aesthetic that you're used to dealing with with Mm. war or politics or trauma or conflict, Mm. you know, what do you get? And that's kind of where my work comes in, you know, and it kind of has, it looks so completely beautiful and Mm. so completely... um, Indifferent to what it's actually talking about, and only the title reveals that so what you're looking at is yeah. quite ugly.
0: But you still have, you still maintain enough mm, signifiers within the work, whether it be the title or mm-hmm. a slight shape or the outline of a continent or whatever, yeah. um, that then links it undeniably to that place and that conflict. So essentially, you could never make purely abstract work, could you?
1: No, I guess what I like is um, making. Work that's very beautiful that kind of reveals itself mm-hmm. as something ugly, and it's almost this kind of double bluff. Mm. And I think we do have these um dinosaur brains that mm. are f- so fundamentally attracted to the most beautiful thing yeah, in course. the room. You know, whether
0: that's beautiful, that, powerful,
1: it is. Yeah, yeah, and whether that's on a runway or in a museum mm. or on Tinder or you know at the club <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, we do go to the most beautiful thing. Yeah in the room, and I think that's such a powerful tool
0: in the toolbox mm. to communicate with, you know. And to reveal something ugly underneath, yeah. Yeah, And absolutely. help us to understand it and deal with it. Just on that, like thinking yeah. about nature and the beauty of nature, which I'm mm. often enamoured by and just think why can't we, you know, why did we need more than that? Like why did we need technology? Why? For me, nature is just all the answers are there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, could you talk a little bit about bees because for me I think your love of bees is so sweet but but particularly the story of sort of that first story of the, the honey in the rock, like what happened there in the studio because I think that's such a great story.
1: The old bees in my old yeah. studio wall? Yeah, yeah. That was beautiful. Yeah, I guess bees is like a love that I've had um for a long time, you know? And yeah, being on the road all the time's obviously pretty hard to be a beekeeper. But, yeah, I think they've always followed me in this really funny way. So, like, the first studio I was just talking about, yeah, we found the kind of biggest free beehive in Melbourne in our wall and it went up the walls. In the, the city. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in a really old building and um, it went up the walls and into the ceiling and then down in the floors below and then down to the second floor and it was just dripping, like, six metres of honey every day. <laughs> it was so phenomenal.
0: Down the walls. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And and so it's just thriving on its own, just this... Urban bee sort of population that found you somehow. Yeah, yours totally video. on its
1: own. <laughs> totally on its own. This kind of really um, thick, cloggy, almost black honey, which um, is pretty rare in Australia. Yeah, but I think right. it was just the building soot and debris filtering Ugh. through.
0: <laughs> when you travel, do you visit other people's hives? Yeah. yeah. So do you share? Do you find that they're similar type of people that have bees?
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's something that, like, I guess when we both used to do graffiti, mm. it was I think the nicest thing about it. And um, I don't know if it's still like that because I'm neither do I pretty out of the game. <laughs> um, but you know, you would turn up somewhere and it'd be like, you do this thing, yeah. I do this difficult thing too. Come stay yeah, on yeah. my couch. Here are my resources. Yeah, yeah come meet my friends, you know, and it was this really beautiful um, way of travelling and meeting people, yeah. which as a contemporary artist now. Nobody, it doesn't happen. No, no, I remember that. it yeah. does that. No. You know, it's too big and amorphous and competitive. Yeah, and yeah. All these things. But, yeah, I think beekeepers are like this beautiful huh. global handshake.
0: Wow. You
1: know, and just instant community. That's so cool. so much openness. You know, you do a really difficult thing and it's mm. – um, so much passion and dedication and attentiveness and presence to be able to do it. Hmm. So, yeah, like I just went um, down the Honey Highway in the Sahara. Wow. Uh, with two friends of mine who are also beekeepers and, um, yeah, just every like everyone that we met along the way in like the Atlas mountaintops and in the Sahara. And, hmm. Um, you know, in Berber villages and by the side of the road just yeah. welcomed us into their their homes and as soon as you've got honey from Australia or your hive, you know,
0: people are so keen. To Did that. you take it around with you? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> like you don't need gold, you've just got liquid gold. Yeah, yeah, So they were really keen to try it and, oh, that's amazing. Yeah,
1: and just to show their setups ups and... Um,
0: just to talk shop and
1: mm. hang out and, yeah, there's so much pride in the work
0: as well. And, and is, exchange yeah. skills, is there that kind of thing or does everyone pretty much do the same thing?
1: Um, no, it's really nice to talk shop mm. and, um, yeah, and it's so different in every place. So, yeah. you know, and African bees are so different to, mm. you know, European bees or native bees in Australia or, you know, whatever you're working with here, which is usually European bees. But, um yeah, it's there's also so many variables mm. and weather conditions, and some places seasons are longer, and some places mm. seasons are shorter, and yeah, things like varroa and disease, and mm. um, yeah, so there's still kind of a lot to talk about and compare, and yeah, it's really kind of nerdy and devoted. Do, you think
0: do you, can you ever imagine in your old age, you know, giving away art and just just focusing on bees?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'm too. Um, I think I'm too restless. I just don't think I could ever do one thing. Mm.
0: Are there any artists that have influenced you specifically, like that you can sort of credit, that changed the way you thought about your practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, Yoko Ono is a really big one because I think the way she sees the world is so fundamentally visceral and cerebral Mm. and all her work, especially the text work, is so poetic Mm. and so Objective and cold that it's almost funny (laughs) but then heartbreaking and I feel like she's a person yeah who's given everything of herself Mm -hmm. in her practice and I guess is also very minimalist in the way
0: that she's done that that's true that is a strong thing in your work isn't Mm. it yeah, I
1: think that's where the cerebral part of me comes in. Is you know, there's a lot of editing, a lot of editing, a lot of mm. trimming the fat, a lot of what am I talking about? What am I? What am I not talking about? I have all these other curiosities, mm. and they might have fed my interest in the work, or but actually, they don't really need to be in it or talked mm. about. Or
0: when did that acknowledged? Come like do you know what I mean? What what drives you to do that rather than include everything at once? Is it just to get a succinct message across?
1: Yeah, I think I'm very conscious of being a good communicator Mm. about my work, about war, about the nature of land, about the nature of politics. And I think it's kind of coming from that, you Mm. know, that you want to be really really direct and really considerate with what you're talking about. Um, No, I guess I have a philosophy degree. I guess that's my background. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I think that maybe it comes from that as well, is just really learning how to communicate and write and speak and Mm. not just in the work but everything that pads the work as well
0: well that is a big part of your practice is the world around talking about your work and publicity of your work and I know that a lot of artists see it as like this sort of negative dirty world or whatever or Mm. even social media whatever way you want to frame it you seem to be good at framing it from every possible angle that you can
1: Oh yeah, I'm like maybe I'm just
0: Nouveau riche, like yeah. you know, kid from the block. You're good yeah, at it though. Just give it to me. But um, it it's not something to be taken lightly. Like it's it's not it's not easy to do that.
1: Yeah, I think I just want to be a communicator and yeah, I mean, for the work to be real is so much hard work and mm. so much dedication that just anything helps, any bit of communication helps any bit of sharing or engagement. Helps, I guess. And, you know, I th- I sometimes think about, like, the things that I would do and wouldn't do if they didn't have an audience. Hmm. You know, I know I'd always hmm. do something creative. But if nobody could see it, if could a tree fell it? in the forest.
0: I don't know if I'd make art, you know. you just do bees. See, you just answered my question. Uh. So if you didn't have an audience, <laughs> you would just do bees. <laughs>
1: No, I think I'd make clothes and read and I would do things that stress me out a lot less, you know. Interesting. Uh, But I think to go through what I go through to make my work and not have the catharsis Mm. at Mm. the end and
0: being able to communicate and show it. That's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it. It's worth all the heartache and the stress and the late nights and the travelling, but you love that bit. I do love
1: that bit. But I just don't think that you could humanly go through it without that
0: catharsis mm. at the end or it being in the world. It's funny because I think that artists, you know, constantly bemoaning that they suffer, like artists do mm. suffer quite a lot, but it's almost like you need to. I mean, for any good artwork, it's, it's the effort that you put into it to mm. see it born and to sort of be out in the world. It's such a huge investment.
1: And oh, it's such a huge privilege to it's be a able to live yeah. like that. I think it's
0: one of the most incredible things that you could do as a human being mm. But in some ways, it's almost—it's making that meaning. You know, it's making sharing. It's sharing that meaning, really, isn't it? It's like making that sort of making your own suffering, following it through, investigating it, creating mm. it, and then sharing it and communicating it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um. But yeah, I think I'd always be a communicator of some sort. Mm.
0: Hopefully, maybe you'll write a book. Can't wait for that one. <laughs> I think we've probably reached our time limit, but I'd just like to say thanks so much and it's always a pleasure to share time with you. Thanks, Tay. That's so awesome. I love so many things about Stan and her work. She's so dedicated and even admits that her one true love and biggest responsibility in life is her work. Stan has really woven together her love of travel, meeting new people, and her passion for deciphering human suffering into her craft. What a fascinating creature. Her seemingly shy demeanor hides a truly huge and extremely compassionate, community-spirited soul. It's big. She really believes in what she does, and as a result, people really believe in her. I adore her faithful persistence in her punk roots and her obsession with anything decorative and laborious. I find it really inspiring how she separated her tattoo practice from her commercial works so that she had something to trade with fellow artists, peers and those who now can't afford her work. And the bees! Her story of travelling the honey highway in the Sahara and exchanging honey instead of money is something we can all learn from. Stan really is the incarnation of the old adage, you catch more flies with honey. Somehow she's worked out how to catch much, much more than flies. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. The first iteration was shown recently at Sarah Scout Presents. The exhibition's over now, but you can see the documentation on my website. For more information about the project and the artists I'm speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician Fia, spelled P-H-I-A, for letting me use the track End of the Day from her album The Ocean of Everything. This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This second season and the exhibition is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts.